Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Now, in my role as a certified financial planner, most of my conversations with clients revolve around investment strategies, setting retirement goals, how to prepare for future college expenses for their children, and planning for the unexpected uh, calamities that can befall us from time to time. But Generally, I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the charitable aspects of their financial situation. And truth be told, I probably have learned more from my clients over the years in this regard than I've certainly been able to offer them. And and as a result, I've been introduced to some just awesome people and excellent organizations uh, in the local community, across the United States, and in some cases overseas. Today's guest is just one of these people. His name is Pastor Chris Hoke, and he was introduced to me by a client and an actual mutual friend of, of ours, Dan. Now, Chris is the co-founder and executive director of Underground Ministries, which serves to mobilize faith communities and businesses in the Pacific Northwest area by connecting them to men and women being released from prison with the objective of forming what he calls Relationships of Mutual Spiritual Transformation. He's also the creator of the One Parish, One Prisoner Model and Movement, which serves to empower churches to get more involved and, I guess, engage with the what he refers to as the tombs that are the American incarceration system. And this movement actually serves a couple of purposes. It takes faith organizations, churches specifically, and connects them with an individual uh, that is being released from prison. What this does is this helps this individual build a network outside of the prison system, which then ultimately hopefully results in him or her having the ability to overcome the, the significant barriers to reentry that exist in society. The other side of it, though, is it also really brings churches back to their roots, or at least in my view, what their primary purpose should be, which is to serve as places of healing and personal resurrection. Through Chris's work as a prison chaplain and pastor, uh, working with gang members in the jail system up in the Skagit Valley area of Washington, he was able to help found the Underground Coffee Company with the collaborative efforts of a former meth cook and a local roaster, which not only served to provide jobs for Uh, individuals getting out of prison and also helping them apply skills they actually brought into the system, but also has probably the coolest company slogan you'll ever hear, which is interrupting mass incarceration one cup at a time. There has been a side benefit to this as well, as it's created a whole underground employers network, which has resulted in companies from a variety of different industries who specifically seek to hire releasing prisoners and those who are recovering from drug addiction. Chris has also written one of the best books I have ever read, top five for sure, called Wanted, A Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail Among Outlaws and Across Borders, and that's available uh, on Amazon. And lastly, and probably most importantly, Chris is the uh, husband and father uh, and lives with his uh, wife and two sons in the Mount Vernon area of Washington. 
So it's my pleasure to welcome my friend, Chris Hoke, who's coming to us today from uh, his in-laws house in Spokane, Washington. Welcome, Chris. Hey, it's great to be here, Emerson. This is actually our first official time seeing each other. We usually talk on the phone. So gosh, there's so much to talk about. And I think this particular topic is unique to say the least, because the truth be told, and I imagine this will come up in our discussion, but talking about working with prisoners. I think most people would just kind of like to keep that over here and go on with life. And so that's what I think is so engaging about this. So maybe if you don't mind to get some background, how you really, really got involved in this, in this work, working with within the prison system and, and this ministry. My story, not to preach it anyone, but this is just my story. I grew up in a very churched home and I was in church on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. And when you grow up in a, I'll use the word overchurched upbringing, you, you hear the stories of Jesus a lot. I mean, the way Don Quixote, like, he reads the stories of the knights errant uh, and the slain dragons. He reads these books so often he goes mad and all he sees around him are, you know, dragons and damsels in distress. So I think I heard these stories so often. The only story that made sense to me is how do we do the Jesus stuff? And being in a church growing up, they use the phrase, you know, raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. My hand was up every time, like, hell yeah. But I, I learned over time, like, oh, they don't mean raise the dead and walk from village with religious people and have dinners with the outcasts. They mean be a good boy and keep coming back to church. Follow Jesus' code. So I, I got pretty disillusioned with the church growing up and found my way into some rough neighborhoods up the east, uh, west coast in Oakland. And then uh, far up in the northwest, Washington. So I grew up in Southern California and I found my way up here in Northwest Washington to work with a group of theologians who are among uh, undocumented migrant farm workers picking strawberries and cucumbers in the fields, families from Southern Mexico, and doing a lot of theological study in a little jail. I thought that's where I want to study the Bible. And so in that jail, there were young men who were my age in their early 20s, and they were funny, and they were open about their anger, and they didn't have to watch their language like I did in church. And they asked brilliant questions about God and suffering, and they knew where the tax collectors and prostitutes are and the meth cooks in their valley. And so that was an exciting place not only to read the Bible, but these guys who were in gangs, I never knew anything about gangs. I was like in all my AP classes in high school. These guys became friends, and they invited me to come visit them and continue the conversations outside of the Bible study groups. So I'd be like, hey, we do a pastor visit. I'm like, I'm not a pastor, but sure. And so we'd talk till 10 p.m. until the guards would rap on the door. And I had the most wonderful conversations, Emerson, like with these guys that I never had at high school, never had in my church youth group. Guys talking about funny stuff, open-hearted prayers, like not just let's be good and bow our heads, like weeping and holding my hands over the table, weeping the loss of their own kids, their own mother who died, and unspeakable trauma, incredible abuse they'd been through. And that was a depth of, of just human connection, of laughter, of tears, and them saying, hey, well, I want... I'm going to call you when I get out, but they never would. I'd only hear from them when they'd go off to prison. So either they'd get out and they'd be out on the streets and I wouldn't hear from them much because they would just be lost in homelessness and addiction, uh, gang violence. Or they'd go off to prison and they'd start to write me long, incredible letters when they're sitting in solitary confinement. And so that was the beginning of my work. I thought it'd be a couple of years in the jail, but they started calling me their pastor and I stopped fighting. I'm like, all right, I'm not ordained, but maybe God ordained me from below, from the, from the streets. Um, and so I became a gang pastor, and the journey continued as many men, their transformation happened when they were in prison, 
and they had enough time and enough hope and connection with me or others to plan a different kind of release to not just go back to their homies or their girlfriends but they had a whole year to kind of put a plan together and find good housing and write long letters to access their heart and who they really were underneath their gang identity or their drums. So that's how a lot of those stories are in that book that you read, Wanted. But since then, I've been in the game for 17 years now. We started Underground Ministries five years ago as a platform to help businesses and churches do what we do across Washington State and beyond now to kind of create a, a re-entry culture of people being in relationship with someone in prison and walking with them as they come out of the tombs of prison. And we like to call that a way to practice resurrection. That book Wanted that you wrote, it was transformational for me because, well, my experience, I wasn't raised in church, but I found that in, in my particular faith, I sort of kept getting put in leadership positions and oftentimes found that a lot of the the focus was on sort of just all the administrative stuff and just a lot of, as you said, appearances and, and meetings. But as I studied and got to learn about Christ, I really realized that, you know, this isn't where he's going to, he's not sitting in a, in a meeting talking about illuminating problems. You know, he's out with the people. And your book really hit home. There was a story that you shared about a guy, I think it's, is it Noe? Is that how you pronounce it? N-O-E? Mm-hmm. You know, the short of it is, because I don't, people need to read the book, but, you know, it was just this guy who had tried to kill himself, as I recall, had, had robbed somebody was like wired on meth, but effectively just felt like a complete failure. You know, he had no hope. And you were brought in, you met with him, and you basically convinced him, which I think is the miracle in of itself, to get on his knees and talk to God. And he got this message, you know, as I, something along the lines of, you're the one. He, you know, couldn't believe it. He didn't know, why am I the one? And, and then, um, gosh, this gets me emotional every time, but the lesson of it was, is you're the one because you're the one that's on your knees praying to God tonight. You know, broken down homie, I think is, is what it was, you know, that had been doing all this horrible stuff. And, and that book was many of those lessons that God will go to anybody who seeks. He's not waiting for us to show up, you know, dressed in our suit and tie on a Sunday. He'll go to anybody whose heart is seeking him. And I think that's just what I took out of it. And I'm guessing because I guess the question to kind of what you said to this point is, I think a lot of people, again, and myself included, until I really got to know you, and even I'm still on the outskirts of this, you know, in terms of my involvement with your work, but, you know, this idea that people don't change, that they are officially hopeless. And if you, you're in prison, you belong there. I mean, this, and I, I don't mean, I know this sounds harsh, but this is, I think, probably how a lot of people feel. And I know, quite frankly, I felt in my life. And then because of you, Dan bringing me to you, it's opened my heart. And reading that book really opened my heart to realize that, you know, God doesn't abandon any of his children. Mm-hmm. I mean, through that book, I, you know, you tell enough stories and, and some of the imagery starts to connect in ways that I hadn't expected. But there was this story where I'm reading, doing a Bible study with the, these homeless youth. And they were talking about being locked inside of a dumpster, like a, a large dumpster was the cleanest, driest place in the university area with where some restaurants or, or coffee shops would keep like the, the cardboard to be recycled and it was warm and dry in there, but they'd get locked in there in the dumpster. And they were pretty upset about that. And that image started to keep coming up in other stories about prisons as a human dumpster. And I think it, what we do with our trash in our culture, especially like America has a unique problem with incarceration. It's not just something that's historical or in every country. We have a way off the Richter scale relationship with, so we call it mass incarceration. 
eight times as much as the second or third place incarcerating per capita in the developed world. It's immense. And I think we have a, a culture of disposability. We want single use stuff. We want a, a TV has a little bit of a, a line in it or a problem. We don't fix it. We throw it away. We call it broken. And I, I think we people have, have wounds. People have incredible suffering. And we say, well, that person's broken. We It's easier just throw them away. And our prison landfill system, our human landfill system is just bursting. And you go in there and you realize there's some amazing human beings here. And they... And if you believe in healing, and you, you start to see how how many beautiful human beings um, are ready to accept healing, are ready to accept and embrace, are ready to, to come back into the community, become a mom, become a dad, become a friend. Um, it's just incredible waste of humanity, and but and yet it's an incredible discovery of of new friends and the magic of healing, and maybe the the discovery that God's in the healing business, and the resurrection business, not the disposal business. Hmm. Our mutual friend, Dan, he actually originally kind of got me involved with the working with the homeless. And, and even the way, even saying that the homeless, there's a label, it's a, there's a distance, there's a separation. Right. And I learned through not just donating money, but also time and their people with names, with a story. And that changes, that's where the compassion comes in. I really appreciate it, admire the work you do. And so... Um, and we'll get back into this a little bit, but I want to talk, maybe have you talk about the other side, because clearly what you're doing, you're doing the Lord's work, you're saving souls and you're going into the, the streets and the lanes and the streets and, and the, the bushes and the highways, you know, the different parables, but the Lord always talks about, you know, the people, the original groups invited, they don't want to come for whatever reason. Everybody's got a reason why they don't want to go to the table. And then he seeks out all the people on the margins, you know, the fringes. And I mean, I don't know if there's much more of a margin or fringe in the world than what you're talking about, which is the uh, prison system. But you do important work. But I also, the, there's another side to working in nonprofit, and that is sort of this administrative side, This, which, of course, there can be a conflict with, you know, the real calling at hand. And so maybe we could share some of that, because I think that's interesting to listeners. And I don't think even myself, I don't know that I really have a real grasp on just how the balancing act that goes on. Yeah. I mean, a nonprofit organization is a business still. Its purpose is not to gain profits or to make money for its shareholders, but it still is an organization that has to has staff and that has to manage resources and programs and delivery and deliverables. And so oftentimes, I mean, folks like me who are going out and doing, whether it's working with folks with disabilities or in the, in the healing professions with people coming out of sex trades or individuals coming home from war or out of prison, it takes so much work to be able to know how to do that well. And then you start a small nonprofit to kind of give some legitimacy and some structure to do it full time. But then I think a lot of folks like me get to the point that we are now at Underground Ministries that... My, the skill set that got me here is different than the skill set that's required now, which is like a nonprofit manager, like a business experience. And so I've been grateful for our mutual friend, Dan, who's a businessman, and others that have come alongside and seen the good work we do and not expected us to run like a business. I mean, maybe would like to help us, you know, grow in that way, but it can, there's a lot of competition among nonprofits in kind of like a capitalist society to kind of compete for dollars and to put a lot of energy into marketing and storytelling 
and donor care as if we're here to take care of our clients, which are donors, instead of we're doing the work out there and hopefully people can support us to do that work out there. I'm interested in our time here today to talk a little bit with folks who are, who are tuning in to chat with you and listen to you, Emerson, about finance and business to kind of both talk about the specifics of underground ministries as well as kind of talk from the perspective of someone running a nonprofit. I'm learning so much this year about nonprofit management and finance and, and projections and income uh, streams, revenue streams, but also wanting to kind of dispel some, maybe some myths and maybe challenge some assumptions in the world of folks that have, who are very resource rich, that maybe are, you know, are relatively wealthy and they have resources to give, but there's a lot of kind of attitudes or assumptions out there about how to give that I don't find very helpful on the, the, recent, the, the donation recipient side of someone trying to run a nonprofit. So the average person, again, I'll put myself in there. You don't really think about that side of it. You know, it's just you see the you see the cause, you see the purpose, and and that's kind of swallows up. You, that's your image, but the reality of it is, is you know, like if a good financial plan, um, people need to save and invest and be consistent and true to that plan. And it's sort of the same thing with picking organizations that you want to work with is you can't just dip your foot in and expect, you know, it's like for me, if somebody comes in and they decide they're going to put 10 grand away and they're expecting to retire on a million dollars in 20 years, I mean, I may be good, but I'm not that good, right? You know, and it's kind of the same thing, you know, it, but with the, the systematic, consistent, disciplined effort, you know, it's, I always equate kind of what I do to like a marriage, you know, you're in or you're out. You nailed it right there, Emerson, that, um, I've been surprised over the years when I've spoken with a number of folks in church lobbies at, after giving like a keynote address or something at a conference that if it were one or two people, but it's a pattern I've heard that I've, I've heard a number of people come forward and say, they're really excited to tell me about their giving philosophy. It's like they've spent more time reading books or developing a giving philosophy than talking about the work that we're trying to support. And But I've heard an iteration of this several times that like, you know, we don't like to create dependence. And so my wife and I, we, we like to give in three-year stints. And we kind of cycle through and we discern every three years and we pick new givers. And, you know, maybe reach out to me in, in a couple years when we're at that three-year cycle. And so I'm kind of making a composite example right now between hearing several people that have said this. But I've thought about that a lot. And I've felt like, well, I'm glad for you and your wife like your philosophy. But if you're going to talk to the folks you're, you're giving with, like, that feels like a real punch in the gut to say um, we want to just give in, in cycles. Like that's that's not how a relationship works. That's not how good investing works. Folks like me on the nonprofit side, like we got into this to do the, the work we're trying to do with folks with incredible pain and develop solutions and, and, and healing and health in our communities. And we know we have to do some fundraising and building relationships with donors. But if, if everyone were on that philosophy, what a terrible world it would be. If everyone started giving every th th three years, that means you're making every nonprofit double their overhead and their fundraising and their marketing department to go over and constantly trying to develop new relationships and no new donors uh, rather than building on a solid budget of people that are saying, hey, and keep us in touch, you know, tell us stories, write your newsletters, stay in touch with us sometimes. We want to feel connected, of course. But if there's not a problem just on principle, breaking up every three years and dating around just feels so that has to serve the giver and it's not a partnership and that's not real giving for organizations uh, doing the work like for me actually from in the book two trips in guatemala there's a donacio and there's a and there's shorty 
and for 13 years, and my wife, my wife and I give to them. And I don't need to read their newsletters. I like to, but I'm not treating it like a consumer relationship. Like I'm here to get a bump of a good feeling. I believe in the work they've done. I trust them. And so unless our budget changes or there's a real shift in our values, I hope to be giving them to them in 15 more years because they're, they're miracles. Their work is miraculous. It's, it's small. It's gritty. They don't need a marketing department to kind of like woo me again every year and a half. I believe in their work and I want them to not worry about their budget so they can worry about the people that are coming out of gangs in the slums. I'm on board for them for a decade and I hope to for decades to come. And I, I hope that more folks who are giving would approach giving that way is to find find some places you really want to invest and be in it for long haul, like a mutual fund. Perfect. And that's kind of one of the reasons I started this podcast, the meaning of the work I do. There was a time when I started this company in 96 and or 95. And, um, you know, I often wondered, what's the altruistic, what's the value of what I do? And I've gone through a few iterations, you know, being a reliable person that tries to be honest with everybody and, and do what's right to the extent you can. And, and you know, I'm just be open-minded to new ideas. But what it's really come down to over the years is, is what you said. It's the relationships. And I mean, I have relationships with people like Dan and his family and, and a lot of other clients where it's just, it's a friendship and we're living life together. And I think you and I talked about this, you know, whenever it was a week or two ago, um, because when, you know, there was the financial downturn and, and we had to start looking at, you know, personally, as well as through the company, you know, where we were sending money, because I've always believed it's important to give to the community. But I guess maybe what you're talking about is a transition from this is a deduction on my 1040 to why am I actually involved and what do I believe and how do I find organizations that fit that belief system? As my wife and I went through kind of a gleaning process and continue to the work you do, honestly, is at the top of the list because I've learned through my own experience and part of it's been through service and church that, you know, it's like you said, I want to be like, you know, I know that sounds crazy to say on a financial podcast, but I want to be like Jesus. I mean, that example is it. When I really dug into scriptures and I wasn't, like I said, raised with it, but started reading the parables and watching what he did and how he interacted, how he treated people. I mean, you're right in the heart of it. You know, that's where he goes. He goes to the people that are suffering. He always goes to the pain. I think you're right. It has to be viewed as a relationship and a commitment. And I like knowing that I'm working with organizations and people like you that actually do reflect who I am and, and the person and, and kind of the difference I want to make in the world. My hope is that too, is as people get some exposure to you, because I mean, it took reading a book, it took, you know, being introduced to a, through a, you know, a mutual friend. Um, and, and I, and truthfully, it was a recommendation. I thought, yeah, this makes sense. I kind of do that a lot. I'll, I'll just do something because it falls into my lap and feels right. But then later, the intellectual side of it kicks in to where, yeah, this is right. You know, it just resonates. It fits with who I am and where I am in my life. So can you maybe elaborate on some of the, the, the challenges specific to the ministry, aside from this administrative side of it and trying to just, you know, manage a business, like you said, so that you can really spend your time, you know, in the highways and the byways, so to speak. What are some issues that you run into specifically with your work in you know, with underground ministries? Well, underground ministries in the last few years has really put all of our, our hope, all our eggs in our basket in this vision called one parish, one prisoner. There's roughly in Washington state, like I was, when the book came out, I was speaking in a lot of different churches or Christian colleges or 
conferences, there would be the Q&A of people saying, what can we do? Like, we, we're, we've heard some of the stories we hear, you know, about this kind of messy and mysterious work of men and women changing in prison and new lives. But what can we do other than reading the book or like sending a check? And I didn't really have a good answer. But then as I'm working with guys, for instance, I work in a very Skagit County in the far northwest of Washington State. It, but guys would go off to prison. That's a state system. And so a lot of their cellies, their cellmates and guys on the tier would be from different parts of the state. And so they'd be putting them in relationship to me. They're like, well, this guy gets out in Tacoma. This guy gets getting out in Spokane. And we couldn't drive all over the state to help them walk through their reentry work. We could do the kind of underground work of, of letter writing and kind of tending to them spiritually and when they're in the deep in the tomb system. But they didn't, we couldn't be their reentry team all over. So I'm like, wait a minute, this, I'm preaching in this church in Tacoma, and which is like three hours drive for, from our house. And there's a guy coming home next week. We're going to be down here next week helping this guy get set up. But we'll just be here for an afternoon before we have to drive home. What if the folks in this church were the ones who have been in relationship with this guy for last year? Because if he just came out tomorrow, he's not going to go head up some church folks and just say, hi, here's who I am. Help me. But if they were writing letters with him for a year and building a release plan, that would be great. And so that's when someone gave us that, that step that there's roughly the same amount of churches. And we thought, well, then we just need to put together a pairing system and a, and a light training system. And so we went from three to nine. I think we just paired our 33rd uh, church and releasing individual pairing in Washington State last week. Um, and I'm out here in Spokane actually recruiting and, and talking with more pastors in the area. And so that's our work right now is helping like if you were in the in Washington State, Emerson, I'd be talking with you and your community, whether you're involved with the church or kind of like a home group and looking at, do you want to go on an adventure of two years with, with seven other people in your parish, so to say, and be in relationship with one person and be writing letters and going out to visit them wherever their facility is and putting a release plan together and accompanying them and rolling away the stones of the tombs. Of the, That's our metaphor for all the bureaucratic structural barriers of driver's licenses and housing and so many barriers in the modern world that people coming out of the underground of having a felony record or being in prison and having no resources. Would you want to go on this adventure for two years with someone? That's what we're doing right now. And so it's, what's cool is that it's, if I'd say it's taken off, it feels like it's not a hard sell that folks are saying yes. But the problem now is logistics is business is how do we sustain this? And so I've been asking questions with our team about how do we maybe charge a little bit for the journey, which I thought I would never do. But that's the only way this is going to sustain because the staffing on our end to do the pairing and the recruiting and the building, the learning modules. And we found that churches are really fine paying for like a one-time tuition. You know, they pay for like video series or programs or Bible studies. So that's cool. But I'm needing to learn, lean on not just folks who are wise in addiction and relationship and reentry. Like that's my wheelhouse. I've been writing all the curriculum, but how do, how do we go from 33 churches, which is really nothing if we're looking at 2.4 million people in America who are incarcerated. And so I'm wanting to talk with logistics folks and someone like Dan, our friend who looks at how do you mobilize numbers and put solutions together across an entire state and mobilize multiple denominations and individuals and emails and storytelling and getting them resources they can tell the story locally. That's the business that I'm up against now and I'm wanting to realize, do I figure this out myself? Do I write grants and hire people that can do this? These are business questions there. Right. 
and I'm surprised actually that you say you you sounds like you've run into some really willing souls. <laughs> and I'm being candid, I, you know, I just lay it out there, but I know the idea of of writing to a prisoner, you know, the first thoughts that go through my head is you know, what if this person gets out? Maybe I've watched too many episodes of Criminal Minds. I don't know. But, you oh, know, yeah, you probably there, have. There, right? No, I know. So I'm, being, I'm, be, I'm being honest because I think this is things that a lot of people would think about is there's a fear element there. And I'm sure that that's absolutely 100% part of the problem. But what do you say to, to maybe some people that feel, you know, just uncomfortable just because of maybe conditioning or just the way, you know, the whole system's portrayed and... I'd say the folks that are that afraid probably aren't reaching out to us or they're not the one kind of volunteering in the church. I think a lot of communities understand the call to work with the incarcerated, yeah, at least in churches. That's a big thing, especially when Jesus says, you know, one of his whole last, you know, final day judgment day parables is about you visited me when I was in prison. And people say, Lord, <laughs> you were in prison. He says, whenever you did this for the least of these, you did it. You were, you were doing it with me. And so I think at least in, in the church world, and I'm working up with some rabbis and some imams now as well, and that throughout the Abrahamic faiths, there's a, we know this is what faith traditions, our values gear us towards. We know, especially in America right now, there's a tipping point. There's an awareness that mass incarceration has failed. This is a huge, big government solution failure. We've put so many people that have mental health struggles in prison. We've put so many people with addictions in prison. I think enough people are one or two degrees away from an incarcerated friend, you know, and their, their son is locked up or their, their niece is, is doing some time. I think there's an awareness that this is our own community who's locked in there. We just don't know what to do. Those are the attitudes we're encountering of people kind of getting it on some degree and wanting to get involved. But so let me speak to the fear part. Because I think it's a paradox. I think some people in their macro level value, so to say, are like, yeah, we want to help the incarcerated. We want to help people come home. But there's that fear. And so one of our, maybe our eighth or ninth church, it was a, a very kind of social justice, let's get involved, activist church. Um, so they said yes right away. And then one of the most kind of activist leading women in the church uh, got on the team and she kind of rallied the team together. But sure enough, after we paired them with someone, we say, now, you have their name. You can Google them if you want. You can try to find out their past. We don't recommend it. What if we could Google the worst things you've ever done? If it was online, would you want me to hit enter and look it up? Or would you rather that I just kind of dealt with you first? And so that was her challenge. And she, she reached out to me and she said, I, be honest, Chris, I Googled them. And I'm really excited about this. And sure enough, he has domestic violence charges. I said, yeah. He said, she said, um, well, that's a little going to be complicated for me. I said, okay, do you want to talk about it? And so we went and we had coffee. And she said, so basically, Chris, I haven't really talked about this with many people. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I have experience in those things. What, domestic violence? A lot of quiet. Yes. Do you want to tell me more about it? We're out here for coffee. Well, she goes back. She tells me a long story about growing up in a home where her dad was very abusive and watching her, her dad, she and her sisters watching her dad hit her mom viciously often. And they were all in fear. And But on the outside, they were the model family in the neighborhood. Turns out he was a leader in the church. Turns out he was a leader in the church denomination that that church is still. So she's still part of this world. And she's pretty teary talking about the fear that she's carried in her life and the anxiety that she still lives with day to day. And she's like, so I didn't think I would be scared, Chris, because like I, 
my politics are such that I'm, I'm aware that the demographics who end up in prison, they deserve a fair chance. But this topic is going to be really hard for me. I don't think I'm the right person to be on this team. And then she'd go back into telling more of her story. And I said, hey, why would you not tell the story? I mean, I, I know the answer to this, but I wanted her to put some words to it. Why would you not tell this? This is your church, right? She says, no, I wouldn't. Nobody knows this at our church. But you're talking about it now. How does it feel? She wipes her eyes. It's good. It, it's, it does feel good to talk about this. And, and these things are real, Chris. And she kind of like a burst of passion and pain came out. These are real and people need to be talking about this. I'm like, so isn't it interesting that no matter how many groups or prayer groups have been in your church, you've never been able to open up some of the most significant wounds of your life until you've been connected with someone coming home from prison who has charges he can't hide about this. Is it possible that this opening up of our own church is thanks to a relationship with someone who has those same stories, but they can't hide it. So she said, I, okay, I want to do this. Maybe this would be good for me. Maybe this would be good for our church. Bingo. And so I started reflecting on that story a lot that I think a lot of us, whether in churches or just haven't been incarcerated, we've got skeletons in the closet. We've got incredible pain and maybe we've just done better at functioning at moving forward in our lives, hiding it. But I think we all need some healing as well. And I think a lot of the folks in prison, that their story and their charges might be just the shape of the key that can unlock our basements and closets and help liberate in, um, our stories. What comes to my mind is how we're all connected, how at the end of the day, we're all breathing the same air, you know, we're, we're living on the same planet and there's some kind of a spiritual link that pulls us together. Uh, that actually, one of my... I did an interview with a hedge fund manager over in Monaco last month, and he actually, I was drawn to him, not because of his, you know, business, you know, futures trading acumen. It was because he wrote an article, uh, he writes a blog, and he talks about a lot of personal stuff, and one of them was, you know, is just this idea that this connection is how we all sort of ascend together. So, you know, it's kind of ironic. Did you say we all ascend together? Yeah, we're all ascending together. You know, like we need each other. Yes, that's it. It's kind of funny, you know, hedge fund manager in Monaco, you know, a prison minister in Washington. and Yeah, I know. like that. I mean, like, that's our language. I mean, that's theological language of the ascent is there's the descent into the tombs and the resurrection is the ascent. I like that we ascend together. And I think our healing and going to the next level is only if we can descend into our stories and our pains and our wounds and that helping this person come home and deal with his story is how this, this church is going to heal and how this woman is healing. And I think that she and this guy, he's been home two and a half years now and they're doing great and they're friends. And I'd say they're ascending together. That church ended up inviting a different program to come and, and lead a workshop on making churches safe for survivors of domestic violence and helping staff handle situations well and see the signs when someone's trying to reach out. There's, there's violence in the home. And that's thanks to this guy coming home. One of the young women on the team volunteered, and she was like a, a homeschooling mom. At first, she was like, what do I have to do? I mean, what do I have in common with gang members and these guys? But something's telling me I need to do this. And sure enough, on her first letter, she didn't know what to write. So she's like, I'm just going to put it all out there. I've dealt with a lot of mental health issues in my life. When I was in my 20s, I was in a health facility locked down for three months. No one knows this. I, I look like the model homeschool organizing parent on the outside, but I've got a lot of them. Um, a lot of anxiety, I've dealt with suicidal ideation. 
And if you're going to write with me, then I'm just going to put it all out there. That's me. And I don't have any answers. And I feel like I'm going to fail you. And I don't know how to help someone come home from prison, but that's me. And he wrote back and he's like, damn, girl, <laughs> I can relate to all of that. I wasn't going to tell everyone on the team, but I've been given a number of mental health diagnoses. And I don't know if they're all accurate or not. And I'm on a lot of meds in here and I don't know what to do about it, but I don't want to like scare the church and I'm a crazy guy. But damn, I feel like this is an answer to prayer that I can just be real. And so they, so she's like, I'm not good at writing and I've gotten busy with the kids, but let's do phone calls. And so every Sunday afternoon, he would call. And that's how they built their connection. And they started calling it, calling each other mental health buddies, that they could laugh about these things together. And I think that's what I want. I think that's how we undo mass incarceration is when we see that our, our stuff and the stuff in prison is the same. And we, we, we don't need to be afraid of it because it's the same stuff as us. It's just maybe a little bit more of it. And that we see that that wall between us and them is invented. And that through stories and through laughter and through confession, we start to heal together. And now that she's had better conversations with him coming home from prison than anyone in the homeschooling group or in her church ever. And the church is now jealous about it. Oh, now the church is wanting to say, oh, what's, what's, I want to have a story like that. What's my stuff I can share? And we're flipping the story, flipping the culture about what's enviable and about what kind of relationships we want. If we can do that in mass, even if some guys come home from prison and their pain is so great, they don't get it on the first try and they go back. That's all right. But if we can start opening those relationships and make stories like that the new norm, I'll die happy, man. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. I was thinking, listening to you, that you've got a person who's physically in prison and you have a woman who is in her own prison. You know, you just couldn't see the bars. You know, I listen to these and I've experienced not similar situations in my life. And it's all it hasn't come from sitting in Sunday school or sitting in another church meeting, it's always been out with people, taking that risk, following that spiritual prompting, and just getting out. And so I really, Chris, pastor, I got to call you pastor at least once in this conversation. <laughs> but I know I... A pastor who cusses. Uh, hey, you know what? The real deal. You know, I, I think... Uh, You'll have to forgive me. You don't need to be... I'm, I'm not in a position to do any forgiving. I just love you, brother. I think you're great and um, you're real. I've always been drawn to that because I look at the Savior and I think he gets painted up as this meek, you know, helpless person sometimes, you know, that was always just docile. And, and I look at him and this guy was a revolutionary. He was a fighter. You know, Jesus, he had a mission and he, ne he never backed off. He had moral courage. And you just, like I said, I've, I know that the spiritual experiences I've had in life have been in... You know, I mean, I remember one time, not to, it's sort of a, just kind of along the same vein, but I was up, we used to go up to Skid Row with this um, church up in, over in uh, Carson, and we go up, they had this thing called Midnight Soldiers. We'd go up once a month at midnight and, you know, hand people while they're sleeping in their tents, you, you know, hygiene kits and water and food and blankets and whatever. But we talked to people, and I remember we'd have prayers. I mean, it was, and it was always this kind of just this thing. You're standing in the middle of the street at, at night. And as you know, midnight in the Bible has some, you know, significance, the parable of the ten virgins, and then there's the one, uh, the, the friend that comes over and, and knocks at the one guy's door, the midnight caller. You know, but it's like the hour where, you know, hope is all exhausted, right? And then, of course, so that was the idea, you know, we'd show up. And I'd have, you know, sometimes you'd be standing in the street having a prayer with people, you know, and here in the behind you are the the, are the t monuments to capitalism in L.A., right? These huge office buildings, and you're standing down there, like you said, in the tombs, you know, and, and sometimes the eyes, you know, you'd look at people in the eyes, and you'd see that spirit in them, you know, and um, 
those are the experiences. And so I, I think to just kind of back this all out, and this is what's, in, I think the, the lesson in all this is, for me, it's not just writing a check. I know, as we've got to know each other, the work you're doing. And Dan's shared with me those trips in Utah, you know, those retreats you do. And I've seen the look on some of those brothers' faces who've never, they've never been in the woods. You know, they've never seen all this open space. I mean, it's, it's healing work. And so I think that's maybe the encouragement I would say for anybody, you know, clients that are listening and just people in general who want to get involved is to find a, I don't even like to call it a cause because that sounds so, you know, but a, a mission, you know, a, a heroic vision is really what you're talking about. It's a heroic vision to change, to change not only the world, but to save souls. I guess that's really what it gets down to. And when you find that, you go all in with it. Yeah. I'm thinking about that interaction you had with that woman, you know, this, this conversation over coffee. And you know what? If you're having to spend time on the phone trying to get in, you know, next month's rent, that conversation doesn't happen because you're busy doing something else. That's, I think, the thing that I hope people take out of this is that if we can help, you know, people like you do what you're best at, then this world's going to change. And uh, I'm just thankful to be a part of it in a little small way that I am. That would be my pitch to your network who's, who's listening here today. I mean, I'm not going to say 10% because the Bible says, I just think it's a good number. Whether you like that verse where it's drawn from in, in the Hebrew scriptures or not, I just think the idea of 10%, just kind of like a, a healthy check against the excesses of capitalist consumption and selfishness. If you just set aside, because this, this is what my wife and I do, instead of being like, well, do we feel generous this week? It doesn't work that way. Like mutual fund, right? It's just like, this is auto draw from our account. Here's the number. We just said, dude, this is a big bite, but long term, this is going to be good for us. 10%, we just set it aside. What is it? What's our income every year? Okay, 10%. Now, how do we want to invest this? And then it gets exciting to think, this is a good chunk of money here. And are there a couple organizations or even just people, just individuals out there that we just really believe in? And how can we have fun long-term investing this part of our finances and seeing the world grow in the direction that we want it to grow? And so if you have an organization out there that you've, you already believe in, you read their newsletter and you like it, and uh, you kind of hit archive, the, you know, when they, they send their appeal out, I just encourage you to sit down at the number in your household, look at 10% and say, how can I use 10% of my income to move the world an inch closer to my values? And that go and visit that organization and spend time with them and say, hey, what would it look like if we started giving it this amount? We, we want to start at least at a five year. You know, we'll kind of like check in with you and see if it's still with us. We want you to just be able to plan on that. There's our dent we can put in your budget. And we just want to learn from you all and get involved and bring the kids. Sometimes if we can, we don't want to get in the way. But to just have fun with that and that make it an important part of your life. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to open your eyes. It's going to expand your heart and be generous. I don't, I, don't, I don't know there's many people who are sitting on their deathbeds who regret being generous. Thought, you know what? I gave too much away. I think most people have the opposite regret. And they've just got a crap ton of money saved up and they're really wise with it. But it was half wisdom. They were numbers wisdom, but they didn't have existential wisdom about what do I want to do with this wealth? And so I just encourage you to have fun and not wait to your deathbed to start investing in what you want to see heal in the world. And I like what you said about it's exciting and it is exciting and it should be fun. And, you know, it, it gives broadens purpose. You know, that's kind of what I opened with is how many times do I have conversations really about people in their charitable 
donations or their philanthropic work, whatever you want to call it. And not often, you know, I know it's there because I got to know clients who share all the different things they do, um, like Dan did in introducing us. But it, it is exciting. And then you feel that the work, you know, my showing up in this office and helping my clients, it just broadens that out even further. It's not just to, to you know, pay, make a car payment or to put my money away for my son's college or whatever. You're engaged in the world. So I've really enjoyed this, Chris. This was just an awesome conversation. You're, you're just a great person. And if people want to find out more, I've already mentioned they can find the book Wanted on Amazon and a few other places. But um, if they want to get a hold of you, I know you've got a couple of websites. Am I right? Primary one is just undergroundministries.org, O-R-G, Underground Ministries. And we just have a URL shortcut to our main program, One Parish, One Prisoner. Uh, you can also just do One Parish, One Prisoner.org, and that'll just take you right to that page. But check out undergroundministries.org if you're moved by what you're hearing today. Or if you want to give, and uh, this this might be we might be part of your generosity portfolio. We would love to help put your resources to healing work, and maybe one person prisoner will reach your state soon. Help us get there sooner. Generosity portfolio. Okay, so you're going to steal the <laughs> ascent. I'm going to borrow that. That's great. I love that. That's perfect. Chris, God bless you, brother. God bless your family. And thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Emerson. This is awesome. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.